Hello, and welcome to the intersection of Crystal R. Emery. Crystal is a member of the Producers Guild of America, an American Association for the Advancement of Science, if then ambassador, and a member of New York Women in Film and Television. Crystal is CEO and founder of You Are You the Right to Be Inc., and she is a badass. Today's episode is Being Frodo Crystal's Journey Towards Eliminating Evil. Here's Crystal Renee Emery. Growing up, The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings series was one of my favorite books to read. I reread them countless times on planes, trains, throughout Europe, throughout America, whenever I was happy, whenever I was sad. I loved this series. And I thought my family were hobbits. They were black hobbits. I mean, you come hang out with us, there's always a party. And on our birthdays, we always gave gifts to other people. And we loved to eat. So truly, I thought I was a hobbit. I enjoyed the adventures and Frodo's journey, but never, never in my life did I imagine that I would be able to relate to him so acutely after my work with confronting racism through many, many projects, such as The Deadliest Disease in America, Open Season, and Changing the Face of STEM. Today, it was 4 a.m. in the morning, and it was a cold day. I was lying in bed, my body too exhausted, and my mind is too awake. Since I can't turn onto my side by myself, I have no other choice but to stare into the blank ceiling until some form of sleep makes their long-awaited visit. But that didn't happen this morning. Gazing into the rough white oblivion above me, I'm thinking about the hard months that have left me battle-weary, but yet I'm still alive. With the right-wing noise machine raging in the background over the past three weeks, my work has experienced such negativity from the political backlash that strokes the fights of racism in this country. I have learned that I could not speak plainly to everyone about racism, and I learned that the hard way. Like Frodo, I have experienced the stabbing pains of wounds inflicted by others who need to define themselves as superior. Racism is all about power and control. Sometimes I would have to sugarcoat my speech with politically correct terms like cultural sensitivity or disparities and allow racism to be masked behind euphemisms like social justice or inequities. It was rare but liberating when I could actually use the feared word, racism, and be assured that the person I was talking to would understand me. Early on in my journey while speaking with the amazing Dr. Kamal Jones, my mind opened up. She talked to me about not allowing anyone to define my capableness or the work of social justice or equity. She often laughed at my lack of understanding, 
certain terms or behaviors. She certainly got a good laugh out of my confusion around the words dominant culture and non-ethnic people. These are key words that she utilizes in her work all the time. But for me, the foot soldier, when I first met her, all this was new language. And it was language that I would have to master. While I was spending time studying the nuances of politically correct speech, the voice of ignorance and obstinance was growing louder in my external environment. The more I learned about the complexities of racism, particularly in healthcare, the more racism showed itself to be a formidable opponent. Shirley Malcolm recommended I read the book Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi. It opened my eyes to the historical roots of racism monster in America, which are deep, insidious, and far-reaching. This knowledge did not help my healing. In fact, it opened an even deeper wound. I was thinking about how, in 2009, when Congressman Joe Wilson disrespectfully shouted, you lie, at President Obama during the State of Union address. It seemed as if the roar of racism was given a boost of energy and a signal was being sent. That message was that anything goes. This became more evident to me and my staff as we had conversations with various communities around the country. Once an associate dean of a nursing school that we were partnering with the medical school and the nursing school had the gall to tell us that we were actually the racist ones for trying to have these important conversations on racism. According to her, my film, Deadliest Disease in America, was propaganda designed to slander every white person working in the healthcare profession. Now that's giving me a lot of power, right? If I could really do that. This ignorant woman went on to spew that it was pretty much common knowledge that racism did not exist in healthcare. And how could it even exist? Particularly among nurses who have to wash the bottoms of blacks and Hispanics. She then concluded with, I have a hard time seeing how anyone with nursing training could actually be a racist. I'm thinking, what the hell, what planet is this woman on? But it goes deeper. After attacking our organization's mission, she then moved to belittling one of my staff, a young black woman who was attending Yale School of Public Health. This innocent and hardworking young woman started to recite some of the statistics around healthcare disparities to the dean to make her point. However, the queen dean countered with statistics from Europe, like many have done when debating me about inequities in America. Unfortunately, my staffer just did not have as much experience responding to statistics on the fly. So she missed the opportunity to tell this mad woman that even in those socialist countries where healthcare is so-called 
guaranteed for everyone. If you focus on the statistics on people of color within those systems, their mortality rates and health outcomes were consistently 10 times worse than their white counterpoints. The dean got so bold as to tell our staff that she would do everything to keep her students from participating in our project, despite the fact that this was a joint project between the medical school and the nursing school, and babbled that she didn't have time to talk to such recent people. She then rudely hung up the phone. In the end, I had to spend the rest of the afternoon trying to nurture my young employee through these ugly perils of racism. I knew exactly how she felt because for the past eight years, week after week, month after month, I had come in from the war against racism with emotional and psychological battle scars all over me. Today, a decade later, and on the cusp of entering into a new decade, this battle continues. We find ourselves in the midst of Trump's America, where bigots, racists, staunch conservatives, and white nationalist hate groups have found their mascot in the current president of these United States, in the country that my black and brown people, my ancestors, built on their backs, on the backs of other immigrant cultures. In the aftermath of the Obama era, where racists cited Obama's presidency as evidence of the end of racism in America, we see that racism not only continues to live, but to thrive in many of the hearts and institutions in this nation. Like Frodo, I had embarked on this journey with a goal in mind, but I had no idea how far I would have to travel and how much of my life I would have to sacrifice to complete my course. No wonder I am tired. It's not the disease of Charcot Marie Tooth that is wearing me down. It is the disease of hate. After working 14 years throughout the country, I am beyond weary. I am at the brink of exhaustion and fatigue, and my spirit gets very low. It seems like week after week, every conversation was some white person waiting for the opportunity to tell me I was poor, black, invisible, how dare you, and now that I'm in a wheelchair, you're crippled. And can you imagine somebody actually referred to me as being a black cripple? I try to be visible. My work challenges their very being, and the attack to annihilate me has been so strong that even through a teleconference, the hate is so palpable. I close my eyes, thinking of Martin Luther King, and I pray for those who perceive themselves as my enemies. More would be revealed when I would call some of my established white mentors. Sometimes I would call to explain a negative situation that I had encountered or to ask their advice on how to proceed on a certain legal issue. And believe me, 
racism holds no bars. And I have had more issues show up that could have turned into serious legal issues. During those conversations, I was shocked by the intensity of their reaction. I never expected that the negative situation I was sharing with them actually mirrored their own internal thoughts. Once I went to see a well-known funder in my hometown and I was recommended to go and see him by a woman that was the leader in the arts community and then also by a friend that was a leader in the philanthropy community securing grants. The man changed at the last minute that I was to meet him at his house instead of his office, which is fine with me. I'm used to meeting people at their homes. And when I tell this story, I think about how what happened mirrored the internal thoughts of the people that recommended I speak to him. After being at the guy's house for 10 minutes, his dog literally started licking my leg and I was pushing the dog away. This man made no attempt to stop his dog from literally violating me. He went on to say that there was no way that I would ever make a film, that I could be knocking on doors forever. And then he suggested that I go away with him and his wife. And he made these comments like, well, you know, you come from Brookside, so you know what the deal is. But Brookside is a housing project that I grew up in. And no, I freaking don't know what the deal is. Because the people I grew up with in Brookside had integrity. Uh, they would have never had me come to their house. And assuming that I grew up black and poor, that anything goes. I had never been so humiliated at that point in my life. After I said to him, you know what, this is all wrong. And you're wrong. And he said, well, you know, you can take it or leave it. So I said, I'll leave it. I started gathering my things. And then he said, well, I'm going to write you a check anyway, because I promised uh, my friends that I would support you today. And my response to him was, you call this support? And his response was, you should be glad that I even let you in your house. Man, are you crazy? Like, you have attacked me on every level possible. Racism, sexism, uh, this is, you know, what is called abuse. And he just was looking at me like, are you talking to me? And I was like, okay, just forget it. And so I left. But when I left, I went directly to the woman's office that suggested I meet this guy. And she said, Crystal, are you sure it happened like that? Now I'm crying my eyes out. 
And she said, well, you should have called me and told me that he changed from his office to his house. I would have told you not to go to his house. Now it's my fault. You would have told me not to go to his house. Maybe you should have thought about, is this the type of person that I want to even fund my work? Because I don't take dollars just from anybody. She went on to say that she would talk to him and at least she would get him to make a donation. I left her office feeling even more violated. I went across the green to my friend's office who also told me to talk to this guy. And he said, Crystal, it sounds like you're exaggerating a little bit. He would never, ever say those things to you. He's a little weird, but you know, you're always looking for a racist around every corner. Then it hit me. Oh my God, this is what liberal racism looks like and feels like. My liberal white friends are starting to recognize that if white conservatives lose their power base, then the white liberal also loses the privilege of their whiteness. Holy shit. Here is where the rubber meets the road. More than Democrat, Republicans, more than conservative liberals, I found that race is still the preeminent dividing and rallying factor in America. My friends are willing to talk the intellectual talk and put some money behind it, but they are not actually willing to do the long walk on the front lines, and it starts with looking at themselves. Both of these people who swear they are the supporter of the underdog and people of color, when I brought to their attention what happened, they both denied it because they couldn't look at their finger in the pot. And the pot looked just like them. I wish I knew what it really felt like to be really free. As the wounds began to reopen, my friend Brian Smedley will pour alcohol to keep them from getting infected and festering in my heart. Honestly, I would have preferred peroxide so that the truth, although necessary, could have been delivered in a way that didn't hurt as badly. Maureen Hunter, one of my oldest friends, who I can call late night anytime, even when she's half asleep, she always answers the phone saying, honey, tell me what it is that you need. Just the sound of her voice would send a healing vibration through my body. She always says, racism is not logical. Therefore, you cannot expect it to understand anything but hate. For a few years, I had a headache. And it was in a long conversation with Dr. Woody Lee that the pressure was relieved in my heart. Of course, it was relieved in my heart, as Woody is a cardiologist at Yale. I never considered that I was challenging values and core belief systems just by having a conversation and asking questions. I was surprised to find that many of the people I valued, who I thought were on the same page about these critical issues, 
weren't even in the same damn book. I thought all I was doing was conveying my thoughts and asking them for theirs. Often their honesty was especially wounding because they were those who were considered close to me, people I thought I knew. But racism, it will show and rear its head at every opportunity. Not to be outdone though, the most damaging blows came when black women in powerful positions turned their back on the project, the work that I do, and called it too cutting edge or too evolved. These were black women who looked just like me. Didn't we share the same struggles? Weren't we supposed to be in this together? Didn't we live in the same America? It was as if someone had stabbed me in the side of my pelvis with a hot knife and ripped it across my womb, severing my umbilical cord connection to my blackness. I came expecting, nurturing and understanding, and instead I found pain and rejection. My friends, Tony, Maureen, and Regina would send bouquets of love left in phone messages or emails. Kamara Jones understood the depth of my pain. Even as I am saying this, and you can hear how tired my voice is. The work that I do is very tiring. As I continue this journey with all of my friends' help, there has been a void that no conversation has been able to fill. Psalms 27. My heart has heard you say, come talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. Calling my soul to push onward, forward, towards the altar. There was a heaviness and a space between myself and the altar. It seemed so hard to pass through this emotional pain and disappointment to find God. But the truth was within me there, and I'm embarrassed. I am ashamed. I had looked everywhere for the answers. And I have forgotten where the real source of my understanding and love comes from. Again, I heard the Lord call my name. And as David did, I came. I laid myself upon the altar, bruised, weakened, and worn. Again, I felt like Frodo, maimed, missing parts, tattered clothing, and my soul. My soul was so weary. As I lay, I heard a voice say, listen to your breathing, listen and feel the breath of life. And with each breath, I heard a voice so soft, so sweet and low, gently telling me he loved me so. There's a peaceful valley, few care to know. I was so desperately wanting to find that place. I fell into a deeper sleep. It was as if I had not rested for years. When I awoke, I rose up, I felt refreshed. The tattered clothing had been repaired. There was a joy in my heart. My limbs moved easy, and the air that I breathed was not filled with hate. 
but each breath was filled with love. The wounds were healing. There were no scars. There was no pain. Then I heard a voice say, be still and know that I am God. I moved forward from that place with the understanding that there are many angels on God's battlefield and that the work to make America a more humane place and to eradicate, I did say eradicate, racism starts with one another. Individuals make institutions and individuals can create change in those same institutions. In this struggle, I have come to understand metaphorically what it feels like to be a Palestinian. They are always under siege. As a black person in America, I am always under siege. I've lived in the world on my terms and have come to realize it is a great cost to be me. Like Frodo on his epic journey when he was rescued by the eagles from the rocks of Mount Doom, some wounds will heal, but the memory is so deep. I thank each of you for listening to this podcast. Somewhere along the way, you have given me a cup of water when I was parched. And believe me, right now, I am so parched, so I'm going to take some water. You have been an antibiotic for the disease of racism that was attacking my immune system. You have helped patch me up, made me laugh, and encouraged me to go forward. Each of you knows the struggles we have experienced. In many ways, you have helped me do the work on myself and the work that I'm doing now. I so humbly thank Guru Madeline, Jocelyn, Harvey, Risa, Bob, Kamara, and Ron, George, Victor, and a host of others. This is what I know. In my father's house, there are many mansions. And within that house, there are many advocates, policymakers, funders, CEO, and regular just people whose calling it is to make this world a better place. I am so blessed and grateful for your support. May you be blessed today in the work that you do and uplift and share love. Frodo, at the end of The Lord of the Rings, gets to take the ship and go into a space where there is no pain, there is no darkness, there is only love. Namaskar. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Intersection of Crystal R. Emery. Subscribe if you like today's episode and want to receive notifications when new episodes are available. New episodes will be available every Monday and Thursday. If you would like to learn more about or support Crystal's work, please visit URUTheRightToBe.org. You can also follow Crystal on Twitter at Crystal R. Emery or at Changing Stem. Music is provided by Jay Hogard featuring I Am Free from his album Harlem Hieroglyphics. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Namaskar.